0: Genesis chapter 3, you know, speaking of the Strohs though, Breggy, you know, it said of Bregman, this is part of the sermon, it said of Bregman that he is a gym rat. You've never heard that term, gym rat? This is people who love uh, the game and they don't just love the game, they love everything about the game. They love the grinds of the workouts. Uh, Bregman's one of the most disciplined hitters in baseball. It said that he would show up at the batting cages, I read this somewhere, at like 3 in the morning at LSU and just the discipline of just getting in. He just loved uh, being uh, in the game, being a part of the game. He's a gym rat. Well, uh, I've got a confession for you this morning. I am not a gym rat, all right? (laughs) Uh, But what I am is a church rat, all right? I love uh, the church, everything about the church. Um, I love um, just Looking at other churches and seeing what they're doing to reach their community. I mean, in my downtime, shows you my life. I will search church websites and just see how their staff is structured and see what programs and events and ministries they have going on. Uh, I love uh, the worship that we did this morning here at ten forty-five. I love the worship that we do in the chapel at eight o'clock. I mean, I love everything about the church. There's something about all this that just enthralls me. I don't know where it started. Maybe, uh, you know, it really fast forward when I was 17, God called my heart to ministry and I knew that I wanted to preach uh, for the rest of my life. And so I really just started following pastors in their ministries and Uh, So much so that uh, I will, uh, I love reading books about pastors. I love listening to sermons by pastors. I love collecting little things uh, from pastors that may mean nothing uh, to you at all. But again, for a preacher boy like me, who's a church rat, I absolutely love it. I brought some with me this morning just to show you. Like this right here, you can't really see this, but this is uh, a note page out of one of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's sermons. All right, so uh, Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers in the mid-1800s. He pastored Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in London for 38 years. Uh, he had a megachurch before megachurches existed. People would come from all over. Uh, the London newspaper printed his sermons every single week. I'm dying for the Houston Chronicle if they're listening. Print my sermons every single week, all right? And so, uh, Spursion to this this is one of his sermons. And on Saturday night, before he would preach the sermon on Sunday, he would go through his handwritten manuscript. And if you see this, you can't really see it, but he would edit it on Saturday night in purple ink because purple was the color of royalty. And he knew when he was speaking of Christ, the magnificence of Christ, he was dealing with royalty. So I have that right there. I have uh, this as well. This is a a, a little bullet here. And it was given to me uh, by the daughter of Dr. Adrian Rogers, Adrian Rogers pastored Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, he was, for lack of a better terms, for the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, he was like the quarterback of the day, all right? Leader of leaders, uh, could preach the stars down. He was so good at preaching that preachers would get his sermons, and they would just, in turn, preach them to their congregations on the weekend. And when they were with him, they would say, Dr. Rogers, I love that sermon you preached. I just, I hope you're okay with it, but I I preached your sermon uh, to my church. And and Dr. Rogers had a saying, he said, if my bullet fits your gun, shoot. (laughs) And so he kept in his study bullets like this, and he would give them out to preachers. And after he passed away, I had the opportunity to be in his personal home study and his daughter I told her, hey, I've preached some Adrian Rogers sermons before, and she gave me a bullet and said, if, if, it, if it fits your gun, shoot, right? And then I have this as well, and I'm very proud of this. This is one of Dr. W.A. Criswell, uh, the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas for 50 years. Uh, I have in my study uh, upstairs, uh, I have um, just about every first edition copy of a book that Dr. Criswell's put out. I think I'm only missing two or three and this one is called The Scarlet Thread Through the Bible and what I love about this little book is it's actually a sermon manuscript. 50 years Dr. Criswell preached at First Dallas and he would tell you that the greatest preaching experience, he wrote this, that the greatest preaching experience was on New Year's Eve. They had a watch night service in 1961. And some leadership in his church came up to him and said, Dr. Criswell, you're always preaching and having to cut off your sermons. He preached for about 45, 50 minutes every single week. You get 35 minutes most of the time, all right? Sometimes I go a little bit over, so don't get all nervous on me. I'm not going Dr. W.A. today. So, they said, you preach these sermons, he said, they said, uh, you're always cutting off, well, on this watch night service at 7.30, we wanna start, and usually they'd sing together, they'd take the Lord's Supper and just bring in the new year, a devotional thought from Dr. Criswell. They said, why don't you just preach? And you just go until you're done. And we'll stay. That's bad. That, don't say that to a preacher, all right? <laughs> because they started at 7.30. And at 12.30 a.m., Dr. Criswell was wrapping his sermon up. And I thought about his sermon, The Scarlet Thread Through the Bible, because it really does inspire this message series uh, that we're beginning today that's gonna take us all the way up to Christmas, what we're calling The Thread, finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Dr. W.A. Criswell articulated well. In this message, he says this, when we preach the cross, when we preach the blood, when we preach the sacrificial death of Christ, we are preaching the meaning of his coming into the world. The sacrifice of Christ consummated the great redemptive plan and purpose of God in the earth. This is the scarlet thread through the ages. In pictures and in people, in symbols and in scenarios and in situations, if you will just look, and that's what this series is going to help us do. We're gonna look at the Old Testament and we will find who the Bible is all about. It's on nearly every page. And I can tell you that the Bible is all about, from start to finish, it's all about Jesus. Today's message, if you're taking notes, I'm calling it the first gospel. It might surprise you to know that before Jesus ever arrived to earth via his physical birth in Bethlehem, it was first predicted 4,000 years before in the Garden of Eden. This is widely known as what is called the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel, And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to look back at the garden. If you have your Bibles there, you're in the book of Genesis. If you grew up in the church, you're familiar with this story. But for those that may be new, we're having new people come in every single week here to Champion Forest, joining us online. We just had a new membership uh, class today. So many new people coming in. I want to make sure uh, that we're doing the contextual work so that everybody understands what's taking place. God has created in Genesis chapter 1 the heavens and the earth and all that is in the heavens in the earth and then he creates the crown jewel of his creation and that is man and woman created in his image in his likeness Genesis 127 so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him and so there's something very special there's something very unique about man and woman we are created in the image of God in his likeness we're not only created in his image but according to the book of Genesis Adam and Eve were put in a perfect environment, the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter two, starting in verse eight, the Bible says this, "'And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, "'and there he put the man whom he had formed. "'And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up "'every tree that is pleasant to the sight "'for the good for food. "'The tree of life was in the midst of the garden.'" in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Adam and Eve created in the image of God as crown creation. He puts in a very special and unique place. They would have everything that they would ever need, a perfect environment, but there's one stipulation to their freedom. There's one warning. Their freedom comes with limits. And that is do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see this in verses 16 and 17 of Genesis chapter two, the warning, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Sometime, after this warning is given, Genesis chapter three Verse one occurs, Satan manifesting himself as a serpent, Genesis chapter three, verse one, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So I want you to take note here, specifically verses one through six of the process of the enemy's schemes toward tempting Adam and Eve to sin against God. I want you to notice his strategy, if you will, because he hasn't changed at all since the garden. Uh, Satan tempts me and you the same exact way he tempted Adam and Eve all of those years ago. You know, we're in football season and and football coaches are watching film on their opponent. They're looking at their weaknesses. You see it in the World Series now. They got iPads in the dugouts and they're looking at how that pitcher's delivering that ball and seeing if there's anything that he's given away. They're studying that film. Well, we get an opportunity here in Genesis chapter 3 to study a little bit of film on the devil. He watches films on us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our sin tendencies. Well, let's watch a little bit of film on him so that we can be able to say no to his temptations notice what satan does first the first part of the second part of verse one rather did god actually say the serpent questions god it begins to seduce it begins to deceive we see him creating doubt in the mind of adam and eve and he moves god's word from an imperative to an interrogative This is where all sin starts. I've said it before. All sin starts with putting a question mark where God has put a period. We are on shaky ground when we begin to question what God has clearly said in his word. This is why we are a people of the word. Like, we're gonna stake our lives on the Word of God. When you come here on Sunday morning, we are gonna preach the Word of God. When you go into a life group, they are gonna teach the Word of God. Everything funnels and filters through the Word of God. Thus saith the Lord. This is what we stand on. Um, Next week. Uh, You're going to have Mark Lanier here to preach for you. One of his specialties is finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And I can't wait for him to unpack Genesis chapter 22. He's writing a book right now, a third in his series. He wrote Christianity on Trial, Atheism on Trial. Now he's writing World Religions on Trial that will come out, I believe, later this year. But it's interesting. You study any false religion, any cult out there, and what does it begin to do? It either adds Or takes away from God's word. And this is what Satan does. It's the strategy to get us to sin. He tempts us to question God's word. He whispers his lies. Just look at verses two through five. He deceives us. Usually perverts something good. He appeals to our flesh. He appeals to our eyes. He appeals to our ambitions. The temptations never change. The strategy To lure us away from God and to enter into sin never, ever changes. And when Adam and Eve make this decision to sin against God, it comes with devastating consequences. And I want to highlight these consequences and the curse that ensues. Because as we begin to see the picture of Jesus in this passage that develops, we can't appreciate it to its fullest degree until we understand the severity of our sin. Adam and Eve, when they sin against God, I want you to notice what they feel. They feel shame. Look at verse seven of Genesis three. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Genesis chapter two, verse 25, when God creates Adam and Eve, the Bible says they were naked and were not ashamed. And now that they've sinned, they see their shame, they understand something has changed. And look at this. They attempt to cover their shame, i.e. cover their sin with leaves. They feel shame. They feel guilt. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They once walked with God in unhindered, unbroken communion and fellowship with God. And now there's guilt. So much so that they are hiding from God. Now just think about how silly that is to try to hide from the God who created you. He sees everything. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes or put it in your phone, this will help you. This is PhD brilliant, what I'm about to give you in one sentence right here, are you ready for it? Sin makes you stupid. No, it really does. Sin, it deadens your heart. Deadens your conscience, clouds your thinking. This is why sometimes we look at people that do something and we know they know better. So how could you do that? How could they make that decision? How could they make that choice? It's what sin does. So they feel shame, they feel guilt. And then look, they feel fear. Look at verse nine and 10 of Genesis three. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, God knew where Adam was. He just wanted Adam to think about where Adam was. Like, think about what you have done. Where are you? What are you doing? And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Shame, guilt, fear, all because they chose to listen to the voice of the enemy rather than obey the voice of God. I need you to hear this and it in your heart. Choosing to sin never delivers on what it promises. It promises pleasure. It brings pain every single time. It promises freedom, it brings bondage. It promises life, it brings death. Sin, always, 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 it leads to misery, it leads to slavery, it leads to hiding. And so I want us to look at the strategy of the adversary and be aware of how he tempts us. Again, he watches film on us, let's watch film on him. Don't listen to his lies. Don't be deceived. According to John 10 10, he's out to kill, steal, and destroy. And in this moment, here in Genesis chapter 3, that's exactly what he did. He destroyed Adam and Eve's unbroken communion with God. And again, just consider the consequences. I mean, look at the curse. Let's just start with Eve's curse first. She's the one that got us into all this, all right? So let's just start with I'm joking, I'm joking. Kind of sort. Of. Read the script. All right, Genesis three sixteen. To the woman, he said, "I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you." And so, we see this curse given to the woman that there will be pain in childbearing. And all the lady said, "Amen." We see marital strife relationships that are nearest and dearest will not be absence will not there will not be an absence of conflict your desire will be for your husband he'll rule over you be conflict then the curse toward adam genesis 3 verse 17 and to adam he said because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which i commanded you you shall not eat of it Cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, into dust you shall return. At one time man ruled and reigned over the ground, but now he will have to work it, and he will return to it. This is, again, a consequence of sin. Sin affects everything. It affects nature here, distorts nature. Working the land is gonna cause pain. It's not gonna be easy. But the major consequence of sin, death. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Every single one of us in here will face a physical death as a result of sin. Thank you, Adam and Eve. Romans chapter five, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. We inherited from our great, 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 great grandfather Adam a sin nature. It is an imputed unrighteousness. We come from the womb, the Bible says, speaking lies. Our heart is bent toward sin. Consequences, the severity of sin, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Physical separation from God, unless God intervenes, unless God does something, and it wouldn't just be physical separation from God, it would be eternal separation from God, unless God intervenes. This is the cost of sin, and therefore, The hope that comes here in verse 15, where we have the first gospel, if you're taking notes and you write in your Bible, just write out beside Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first gospel, we get our first sign of hope, our first sign of a redeemer. God curses the serpent, and he gives this promise, and interestingly, while we're taking it After the curse of Adam and Eve, because I wanted you to see the severity of sin, in Scripture, this first gospel, this hope, is given before the curse. This just magnifies the love and mercy of God. God knew that this curse was going to cut deep. He knew that the consequences of sin was significant. So before he even gives the consequences, he gives this first picture of hope and it is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Genesis three fifteen. I will put enmity, strife, war, battle between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his Heal. This is the only time in the Bible, the only place where a person is referred to as the offspring of a woman. We get the picture here that there is someone coming, the offspring of a woman. Usually it talks about the seed of a man that gets to the offspring. But here it's the offspring of a woman. Someone is coming. Paul, writing the church in Galatia, he would look back at this time and he would see this offspring singular, this one that's none other than the person of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter four, verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. We can say with certainty We know who the offspring is. It is Jesus, and we know this because of what God says the offspring will do. Look at it in verse 15. A bruise to the heel is a damaging blow, but a bruise to the head is a fatal blow. One hurts, one stings, Another kills, another destroys, and right here we see our first picture of Jesus Christ. We see his heel being bruised in the cross, we'll work this out in just a moment, and we see him crushing the head of Satan in the resurrection, and this is why it's called the very first gospel. We see Jesus. I wanna show you in this passage three actions that God takes And we see this in the person of Jesus Christ. It comes right off the page. The first action we see that God takes, and again, we see Jesus in this, is that sin is covered. Look at verse 21 of Genesis chapter three. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Where do you think those skins came from? Adam and Eve deserved death. But God instead killed an animal. Before the sacrificial system was ever in place, here we see God sacrificing an animal, substituting an animal, its blood, and he clothed Adam and Eve's shame he covered their sin see adam adam and eve they tried to cover their sin they tried to cover their shame they sewed fig leaves together but that didn't that didn't help only god can cover sin and what we see in this passage of scripture is that the covering of sin it takes blood see we often try to do what only god can do we We sin against God and we try to cover our sin. We we promise God that we'll do better. We promise God that we'll work harder. We promise God that we'll serve more. That'll cover my sin. That'll make me right with God. And all of those are feeble efforts. They don't cover our sin. The only thing that can cover our sin is a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. Writer of Hebrews would look at the sin substitute would look at the sacrificial system and he writes hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin if you're new to the church obviously you've seen jesus on a crucifix and he's on that cross and the significance of that cross is his blood shed Born of a woman, 100% man, yet 100% God. And so he had pure blood. Our faith is a bloody faith. And we'll never get around that and we'll never get over that. You come to Champion Forest long enough and you are going to hear sermons about the blood of Christ. You're going to hear us sing songs about the blood of Christ. There's power in the blood. We've seen there's wonder-working power in the blood. We've seen there is a fountain filled with blood, flowed from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. We sing about the blood, we lift high the blood, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow. That makes me white as snow. No, other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is what covers our sin, not our good works, not our good deeds, not coming to church, not being raised in a Christian home. The only thing that covers our sin and makes us right with God is faith in the blood of Jesus. That's what does it. And we see it right here in Genesis chapter three. This week I'm getting on a boat with 15 other pastors from all over North America through our CF Connect ministry. You know, that's a ministry that we have that trains and resources and equips pastors. I'll show you a picture of the boat on the screen. We're going to the Amazon down in Brazil. This will be my third or fourth trip there. You see the boat, the bottom floor there is where the staff kinda hangs out. The second floor is where we stretch hammocks across the boat, that's where we'll sleep at night. And that, You say, can you sleep on a hammock? It'll rock you to sleep like a baby. It's awesome. Unless there's flies out there. I was out there one time, and I'm telling you, if those bugs would have worked together, they could have picked that boat up and taken us anywhere they wanted to go. (laughs) And then upstairs, you got the kitchen and the hangout room. There's showers and bathrooms on the second floor there. I can't wait to get on that boat. We'll go up the Amazon River. And the Amazon, you know, picture it like I-45 without the traffic, you go and you'll pull up into these little country towns, if you will, little villages, Indian villages. And we'll go in and we'll share the gospel with our Portuguese translators and we'll just go hut to hut sharing the gospel. We'll have another boat that's coming alongside us that'll do dental care and optical care and some will divide and do that. I can't do that, I'm too weak in the stomach for that. I'll just, I'm gonna go share the gospel. All right, I'm gonna share the gospel hut to hut And then we'll go up to a city in Brazil called Parenchins. We partner with the First Baptist Church of Parenchins and we'll train some pastors there that go into these villages. Why am I telling you this? Number one, I need your prayer, all right? I want your prayer. Uh, But two, you know what? We're gonna tell these people living in a village, same thing I'm telling you here this morning, that your sin separates you from God. And that the only thing that can wash your sin away is the crimson blood of Jesus. He covers our sin, but now he not only covers our sin, look at the second picture of Jesus we see and that Satan's defeated. Listen again to the promise of hope, second part of verse 15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus would suffer for our sin. His heel would be bruised. The cross was a brutal way to die. Jesus suffered, but the final victory would be his. In his resurrection, he crushed the serpent's head. He defeated death and Satan once and for all. The writer of Hebrews, again, Hebrews chapter two, verse 14 and 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This offspring, 100% man, offspring of a woman, 100% God, the son of God, He was a flesh and the Bible says through his death he might destroy the one who has the power over death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See this victory over Satan that Jesus won, he shares it with us. All those who have put their faith in Christ who believe by faith that Jesus' blood covers their sin. He shares this victory with us. I have several study Bibles that I read every week as I prepare for these messages. And if you don't have a study Bible, I encourage you to go out and get one. It can be ESV, it can be NIV, it can be life application, any kind of study Bible that has commentary notes and I was studying this week, and I love this little note in Genesis 3.15 in the NIB Study Bible. Listen to what the writer says. The antagonism between people and snakes, talking about the curse of the serpent, is used to symbolize the outcome of that titanic struggle between God and the evil one. See, there's a reason we don't like snakes, right? I was running this week. I like to tell you anytime I'm running. I was running this week. <laughs> and I was running along a, a, golf, a, a cart path, and man, there was a snake that came up on me. And if anybody was watching, they would have thought I was crazy because I was high knees sprinting from then on, all right? I don't like them. Look at this. The offspring of the woman would eventually crush the serpent's head, a promise fulfilled in Christ's victory over Satan, a victory in which all believers will share. Man, talk about the beauty and the majesty of Jesus and that he doesn't just cover our sin, but in going to the cross, he defeated Satan once and for all, and because His Holy Spirit lives in us, God in us. We don't have to fall prey to the enemy's temptations. We have the supernatural ability in us to say no to sin and say yes to the Spirit of God, to feed the Spirit of God, and to serve that flesh, that sin nature, that desires to, to go the opposite way of God. We don't have to follow. The enemy's voice. We have victory in Christ. There is a reason that Jesus is described as the second Adam. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For as by a man came death and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See what the first Adam did wrong in disobeying the voice of the Lord. The second Adam, Jesus did right when in the garden, he said, not my will be done, but yours be done. See, what the first Adam got wrong in sinning against God And then came the curse and the consequences of sin. The second Adam, Jesus said yes to God and he secured our salvation. Paul, no doubt, when he was writing Romans chapter five, he was studying Genesis chapter three and listen to what he writes, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, in the garden. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, Adam, the first Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, The many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. See, in Christ, in Christ, we look at the first Adam and we get an imputed unrighteousness. It's ours, we didn't ask for it, it's there. And we could look at that and say, God, that's not fair, that I have this imputed unrighteousness that I didn't deserve. But then God sends Jesus, he says you trust in him you'll have an imputed righteousness that you don't deserve either. This is the beauty of Jesus. You see it all the way back in Genesis chapter three. You see our sin covered, only Christ can do that. You see Satan defeated, only Christ can do that. And then you see, look at this, our salvation is secured, only Jesus can do this. The great thing about Genesis chapter three, verse 15, is that it's both a prophecy and a promise. And the one thing about God that I know, watch this, one thing about God I know, he keeps his promises. God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden as a result of sin. Look at verse 22 through 24. And then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us and knowing good and evil, lest he reach out his hand And take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. See, when he banished Adam and Eve from the garden, this was an act of mercy. This was an act of grace. He didn't want Adam and Eve living forever in their fallen state. And so he banishes man from the garden. But then he promises one day to return us to the garden. It's interesting how the Bible starts in a garden and how the Bible ends in a garden. Revelation chapter 22, I was talking to a friend about this just last night, man. There's no way we can do this text justice in the time that we have. I would need four and a half hours and more to be able to clearly articulate and show the depths of the beauty of what we learn in this passage about Christ. That's what's so glorious about studying the Bible. You can study the Bible seven days a week, 24 hours a day for the rest of your life and still not uncover the riches of the glory of God. In Revelation chapter 22, we see that God has prepared for us this garden. And listen to what the Bible says, the angel showed me the river of water, I end with this. It's as bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the land through the middle of the street of the city on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. This is a place that's been eternally prepared for us. It will be eternally satisfying to us. All of our needs will be met, total access to the tree of life. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be anything a curse. Everything that sin causes pain and heartache and brokenness and separation, it'll be no more. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. That just denotes ownership. We are his. He is ours forever. And night will be no more, and they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And then look at verse 6 and 7. And he, the angel given John the tour, said, These words are trustworthy and true. You can count on this, what the first Adam lost and what he was banished from. The second Adam, Jesus, if we trust in him, will give us access to forever and ever. When's it going to take place? All Jesus says is there in the first part of verse seven. I'm coming soon. Revelation 22, the end game, was promised. It's a fulfillment of Genesis chapter three. Jesus is the thread throughout scripture. And if we look closely enough, and we will in this series, we'll find him on every page of the Bible, amen? Let's pray together, let's pray together. Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforce.org connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus, in person, on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.